Ready to learn why cash flow and compassion are not mutually exclusive? Each week, brand strategist, speaker, and author Maria Ross will introduce you to the trailblazing brands and leaders who embrace empathetic tactics to reap huge rewards. You'll learn about winning teams, brand wins and fails, unforgettable customer experience, and bold leadership decisions fueled by compassion. You'll get the latest trends and research, discover practical ways to infuse more empathy into your work and life, and hear from innovative market leaders who've smashed outdated models and redefined success. Welcome to the Empathy Edge Podcast, the show that proves empathy isn't just good for society, it's great for business. We often think of the term radical as something negative, crazy, provocative, but I am loving the term radical empathy coined by my guest today, Terry Givens, who is releasing this week a book by the same name, Radical Empathy, Finding a Path to Bridge Racial Divides. We have so much work to do in this country, in organizations, in higher education, and in our world at large around empathy and bridging, healing racial divides, inequity, injustice. Today, I talk with Terry Givens about her own personal story and her experience researching and addressing racial inequity. She's got so much great information to share with you today about how to start taking actionable steps towards radical empathy, what we need to do to heal our country and our world around racial injustice, and what higher education institutions can do to make sure that they're paying more than just lip service and providing an inclusive environment that not only welcomes underrepresented groups and minorities, but helps them be successful while they're there and graduate. Terry Givens founded Brighter Higher Ed after a successful career as a political scientist in immigration and European politics. As a former vice provost and provost, Terry has been a visionary leader in the areas of diversity in higher education. She's an advocate for improving access and opportunities for students through innovative curriculum and the effective use of educational technology. She's an accomplished speaker and uses her platform to focus on inclusive leadership and encourages personal growth through empathy. Her book, Radical Empathy, Finding a Path to Bridging Racial Divides, comes out this week. And you guys, it's amazing. Tune into our conversation. You'll love it. Welcome, Terry Givens. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you at long last. (laughs) Yes, well, it's my pleasure to be here. I've been looking forward to this. I know. We first connected, I think, sometime last year or maybe even, I mean, who knows? I can't keep track of time in a normal way anymore. Uh, So it may very well have been only six months ago, but you and I connected over our mutual empathy books and your book, Radical Empathy, comes out this week. I cannot Mm -hmm. wait The world needs it, finding a path to bridging racial divides. But yeah, we connected through that and have actually been on some panels together, which is wonderful. So I would love for you to share with listeners your story and your experience researching and addressing racial inequity and what brought you to this work. 
So, you know, I, I have to start with where I grew up, which is Spokane, Washington, in eastern Washington, for those who don't know where that is. And, you know, so I grew up, uh, my father was in the military, my mother was a stay at home mom, I was the youngest of seven children. <laughs> and, you know, I always tell people it was very interesting to grow up black and Catholic. So I'm African American, and my family is Catholic, my mother grew up in Louisiana. And so she grew up, I mean, I have an, an aunt who's a nun, I mean, we're very Catholic. Wow. So when I was growing up, um, you know, I just didn't have a lot of connection to the black community in Spokane because it's small. The black community in Spokane is less than 1%. And so, and we just didn't have any connection really because we didn't go to the black church. But, you know, I mean, I did have some connection through school because, you know, there were some black kids in my school, but, you know, it was just an interesting way to grow up. But, But, you know, it was also diverse. I mean, my friends were Asian, Latino, white. Uh, you know, all different uh, Native American, all different kinds of backgrounds. And so I feel like I had a rich childhood, but it was, you know, I just, you know, that that comfort with being black was, you know, lacking. <laughs> and, you know, right. it didn't help that my parents, you know, really wanted us to be assimilated. And, you know, and, and, you know, frankly, you know, from their perspective, it worked out. I mean, their children are successful and so on. But I really struggled with that concept. So when I went to, I, I you know, did really well in school, went to Stanford University. And that's when I felt like I really started struggling with my identity. You know, what does it mean to be a black woman, you know, at Stanford and, you know, all this stuff. And so I call my twenties, my years of cognitive dissonance, <laughs> because, <laughs> like you know, I think everybody goes through this, you know, when you're trying, I mean, I'm watching my own older son yeah. go through this, you know, he just hit 20 and, and, and you know, I'm like, wow, you know, it's, it's really interesting this country and just our, our structures make it difficult to be a black person. Right. And then on top of it, you know, you're trying to find who you are, your identity and, and all of that. And so throughout my twenties, you know, I, I really struggled with that. And by the time I, you know, got you know, late twenties, I finally realized I just have to be who I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't have to, but you know, everybody's trying to make you conform to what they think you should be. Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, I, yeah, I, I was out for six years between undergrad and grad school, went to grad school and decided to start studying, you know, be, I wanted to study issues of race in Europe because I'd, I'd gone to France as an undergrad and I, I learned to speak French. So I knew how to speak French. And it was really fascinating to me what was going on around race in Europe. And so I then, um, you know, uh, did a dissertation that was around anti-immigrant politics because if you if you're going to talk about race in Europe, you have to focus on immigration because even absolutely, if they, yeah, you know, yeah. It, it's if you if some you're somebody from Africa, even if your family's been there for five generations, you're still an immigrant. You're a foreigner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so whether you're in France or the UK or Germany, you know you're treated like a foreigner so, or an immigrant. So in any case, I learned a lot about different groups: the Turks in Germany, you know, North Africans in France, you know, the uh, people from India and Pakistan and, and Africa and the Caribbean in the UK and all these different groups and, and how they're treated in the different countries. And I studied the anti-immigrant parties, the radical right. And so, um, you know, I did that work for many years, um, mm-hmm. you know, as a professor of political science, I started out at university of Washington, went to university of Texas at Austin. Um, that was after getting my PhD at UCLA. <laughs> Everywhere. Uh, Yes, I've been all around. And um, so, but I I stepped into the admin world after being a professor for a while at University of Texas. I became a vice provost 
And then when I left UT, I became the provost at Menlo College. And that's, I live in Menlo Park, California now. But I started thinking a lot about my experiences and, and how I could, because I'm, I've always been a mentor. I, so one of the things I make sure that I do is I reach back and help anybody I can. I have so many mentees, I can't keep track of them all. But, you know, I, I, I really appreciate the fact that I have had mentors. And, you know, one of the interesting things we can talk about is that, you know, people ask, well, how do you get mentors? And Well, you know, frankly, because I was in ac- academia, which is a white male dominated field, all my mentors just about, I had some female mentors, but most of my mentors were white men. And I talk about that in my book because, you know, allies and white men, you know, they can be extremely helpful, not just mentors, but sponsors. I, you know, the, Absolutely. they actually, I mean, that's how I got the position of being vice provost at UT Austin is my dean and the provost then you know, they picked me out of the crowd and said, Hey, this is somebody who has leadership capability. Let's get her in. You know, so I, I, I you know, advanced very quickly and, you know, I really appreciated that. But I, you know, when I started to work on the book, the, my goal was really to understand, you know, what did my parents want for me? You know, why did they have us grow up in Spokane, Washington? When my dad was from Pittsburgh, my mom was from Louisiana, they'd spent time, you know, the, the place they had lived, they actually met was Los Angeles. And I was, and you know, I was born in 1964. So, you know, you can imagine what, and I was born in Spokane and then my other siblings were born elsewhere. Even actually three of my siblings were born in Los Angeles, but they couldn't go back to LA at that point in time. It was, you know, the sixties, there was the watch riots, there's all these things going on. And so they decided to stay in Spokane. They bought a house and that's where we grew up. And, but also I, I start, you know, one of the books that I really cherish amongst many others is the warmth of other sons. And, you know, it's, it's about the the great migration, but I, I'd read about the great migration before, but the thing that was really helpful to me was that my mom had moved from Louisiana, New Orleans to uh, Los Angeles. And there's a whole group of, you know, I have a huge number of relatives down in LA. And so there's this whole group of, of people who moved from Louisiana to Los Angeles. And, you know, I didn't know I really didn't understand until I read that book. And, you know, it's the only book I've read about the great migration that gets into this, you know, how people didn't just move from say Mississippi to Chicago. They actually, you know, there's a lot of people who came to the West. So it was really neat connecting with that tradition. That's amazing. I mean, you have been everywhere, you've done everything and, and looking in the field you're choosing to study and where you've devoted your life you're looking at it through the lens of being black American woman. And so That's right. that brings a lot of texture to the work that you do. In your opinion, given all that you've researched and seen and experienced, what do you see as the biggest challenges that we face for a more just society? Is it simply we need more empathy? Or is it <laughs> obviously there, if there's more to it than that? And yes. so, you know, in as much of a nutshell as you can. <laughs> I know yes. we could probably answer that question for three hours, but yes. what do you see as some of the challenges there? Yeah, I was going to say, I do whole workshops around that, exactly. But, exactly. But no, it's, it's about, first of all, understanding yourself. And part of that for me was understanding what internalized oppression means, which is the idea that, you know, I was not only was society imposing on me what they thought I should be and do, but I was, you know, I was doing it to myself because I was seeing what was around me. And so what it comes to in terms of creating change is first of all, understanding, you know, just because you're white or whatever, it doesn't mean you're 
racist. But what it does mean in this country is that we live in a society that's been built on structural racism. And so, you, you know, you may, you probably don't have a racist bone in your body. And yet as a white woman in this society, you have better opportunities to live in a nice neighborhood and go to the best schools and, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's because of our history. And that's why I spend a lot of time talking about history. And actually, I'm working on another completely separate book on, on just the roots of racism and history. And that it's my publisher's you know, pushing me to get that one done, <laughs> but, um, you know, it, 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 it's really critical. And I think this is coming up, you know, in these times that we're living in now that the history is so critical to understanding where we are today. And so, no, my neighbor is not racist, but if I look around and where I live in Menlo Park, California, there's maybe one or two other black families and, you know, it's because of the structures that were created that kept people from getting loans, that kept people from getting good jobs, that kept people from, you know, being able to buy a house. I mean, you know, literal redlining where a, the disadvantages a real... piled up against exactly. people to hold them back. One of the best visual representations of privilege that I've ever seen was a video. I don't know who created it, but someone had created a video of a bunch of people ru- about to run a race yes. in a field. Have you seen mm-hmm. that one? I have. And then the person reads out different things like step forward. If your parents are still married or step forward, if one of your parents went to college or step backwards, if one of your parents has ever been in jail and the person reads off all these different circumstantial things, but never moves the finish line. So then they say, okay, the race can start now. And it's Mm -hmm. the best, just visceral visual way of understanding what the issue is, and it has nothing to do with intent. It has nothing to do with people. I mean, some of it doesn't have anything to do with people being nice to each other. It's, it's a system that exists that so many of us, I mean, myself included are just really starting to understand and crack open. And we kind of always thought it was there, but that video in particular really struck me because it's, you know, especially as the mother of a six-year-old where I'm trying to teach him the idea of fairness Mm -hmm. and how fairness is about fairness is about giving people what they need. It doesn't necessarily mean you give everybody the same thing. Some people need a little bit more to get to the finish line than other people. And that's still fair. And so um, I just, it was such a powerful image and, you know, I, I hope it changed a lot of other hearts and minds that maybe weren't as far along as I was. I mean, it, it, really hit home for me. So I think that idea of just really understanding why we need to look back at history where people say like, oh, but that was, that was the past. Like it was hundreds of years ago. It's not today. I don't see, you know, all the things they say, I don't see it. And it's like, we have to understand the historical context in order to find the empathy for people, again, not just in our workplaces, but in our lives and in our communities. Absolutely. And, you know, that's why I call it radical empathy, because it's wonderful to have empathy. And we all need to have empathy for ourselves and and to learn how to, you know, be more accepting of others and, and so on. But, you know, you have to take those next steps. First of all, you have to practice empathy because it doesn't come naturally to any of us. It does not. Yeah. Nope. And secondly, you have to take action to create change. So it's like, you can't just say, oh, is it, it's too bad that, you know, Terry doesn't know any other black people in the neighborhood. It's like, well, what can you do to change that? You know, mm-hmm. maybe you could, you know, inc- if you have friends who you think are, you know, 
would be interested and, and like a nice neighborhood, you know, maybe invite them to come and visit. You know? mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different things we could do. And so that's why I, I try to, you know, I, I, each chapter of the book lays out actual actions you can take. And part of it is just understanding your own story. That's what I spent, you know, a few years just trying to understand my own life story so that I could then have empathy for others who maybe had, you know, different life experiences. Mm -hmm. It's that idea of having your own house in order and grounding yourself. You know, in, in my book, as, as we've talked about my first, very first actionable habit for being a more empathetic leader is about practicing presence. It's about yourself being grounded Mm -hmm. and, and in the moment and, and getting your own house in order, if you will, before you can really show compassion or show empathy to other people. It's part of Buddhist teachings is that to be compassionate, you have to have compassion for yourself first. And I love, I think this is the tie that binds us is that we both wanted to write, write books, not about the theory of empathy, but about putting it into action. Like how, for me, it was sort of how, how can people take it to work every day? And hopefully with that, it would spill over into their personal lives. Your, your book is about obviously bridging racial divides. Can you share a few of, of the methods of the action steps that you talk about in the book? We obviously want people to go out and buy it, but can you give us a little bit of a teaser where someone listening could maybe put something into practice right after listening to this podcast? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I really try to hone in on is not only telling your story, but listening. So one of the, the, first things you really have to be able to do is listen. And, you know, we talk about things like active listening and so on, but it's, it's deeper than that. It's about listening and then trying to understand and, you know, and then take that next step to, you know, responding in a way that lets the person know that you listen. Right. Not reacting, responding. Yes. (laughs) Right. Because I think that's the thing is we listen and then we either want to just say what we want to say or we get defensive and we we don't actually take it in. Or we say, oh, let me fix. You know, it's so funny because I have this discussion with my husband all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. When I when I try to tell him something, he wants to fix it. Yeah. And I'm like, no, I don't need you to fix this. (laughs) I need you to. I just want to be heard. And then let me know that you heard me. Yeah, and, and one of the things I tell people with active listening, sometimes it's just repeating back to the person what they told you, you mm-hmm. know, and that gives them the message that you actually heard them. And so, but you know, there, there, there's so many things you can do beyond that, right? Once you really feel grounded in yourself and who you are and, you know, you're ready to practice empathy and take action, you know, what, something I tell people is just get to know your community. You know, take some time, you know, go to a cultural event that you don't, you know, don't know anything about, <laughs> you know, learn something about a different culture. I mean, one of my favorite things to do is, you know, to go to some of the places around the Bay Area where I, you know, I love Korean food. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I have friends who will take me to the, you know, the places, the insider places. And, and I, you know, I just <laughs> love spending time in these spaces where, you know, it's getting out of my comfort zone. Totally. I mean, I'm doing a workshop right now and we just talked about this whole idea of getting out of your comfort zone and, you know, but I, you know, it's just so fascinating to me and you, you have to be careful when you're going into these spaces, not to, you know, um, be, 
you. I mean, not, I don't know how it's offensive in any way. You know, I don't, I'm right. not trying to, you know. Or you're not also treating it like it's a zoo where exactly. you're going into like observe the people in their natural habitat. Like you don't want to go in from that perspective. Either. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah. and, and and so it's, it's being humble, right? Mm-hmm. So when I go into those spaces, I'm very humble. I'm, you know, I don't, I, I, I acknowledge, I don't, I don't understand what to explain to me what this dish is or, or, you know, what this, this tradition or your cultural event is about. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is about having humility and not assuming that because it's different, it's beneath us or, you know, something that, you know, we can't participate in. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I, I've, I've been really fascinated and I keep saying I'm going to go to the Stanford powwow and then I don't make it, but, you know, there, there's things like that, um, that, you know, I'm like, well, you know, I, I talked to my friends who do those events. I'm like, well, is it, is it okay for me to go just as kind of an observer? Cause I'm really interested in that. Like, of course, you know, we're welcoming as long as you come with an open heart, you know, and curiosity, right? Yes. You- People want to be heard. And if someone comes into your space and wants to listen, mm-hmm. that's a great compatibility right there. I want to ask though, you know, there's so many, there's people that approach sort of bridging the racial divide from different angles. So some people think we sort of need to policy our way to it. Other people think, again, we need to do more of this emotional intelligence work for ourselves as individuals. Where do you stand on that? And and related to that, wrapped up in that is when people try to create policies or practices like DEI programs, for example, within companies, they often fail. So what's mm-hmm. your viewpoint on where is the best place to start? And it doesn't have to be an either or. It could be a both it's and. Not- I don't know. But talk I'm, to us about that. Well, I'm a yes and person. <laughs> <laughs> You're an improv specialist. <laughs> That's right. But um, no, it's it, it's everything. I mean, that's why I talk about it as a, it's a continuum, you know, starting with yourself, you know, understanding your own internal issues, biases, whatever it may be, and then working up to policy. So th- I think part of the reason why we are a lot of our diversity efforts fail, and believe me, I've been watching this for a long time and they do fail, is because we come into it with the attitude, okay, I'm going to do an unconscious bias training. And I'm going to teach these people what unconscious bias is. And And then they're they're not going to have unconscious bias anymore. Exactly. (laughs) Then they'll be cured. Yeah, that's (laughs) not how it works, you know? And so I, I, you know, I tell people, I come at this with the understanding that most people, you know, there are some people who, you know, maybe just hardcore racists and you can't change them. But, you know, the vast majority of people have good hearts and, you know, care and they have families and they're loving and all of that. And so if you come at it with that attitude and help them see, that's why my book is so full of, here's the data, here's the history, here's why things are the way they are today, because you have to help them understand that we are here today because of our history, first of all. And then secondly, to be accepting of the fact that, like we were just talking about, people like me come, we arrive with all of these hurdles in our, you know, so you know, everything I've accomplished has been, you know, I've had to jump through all of these. I mean, I was having a discussion today with somebody we were saying how, you know, when I, I as a black woman walk into a room, even though I'm a leader, I, I may be a provost, the professor, whatever, I have to know that 
you know, and think about the fact, okay, how am I dressed? How am I doing my hair? You know, are, are people going to help? How are people going to respond to me? And, you know, I'm old enough that I am kind of past that. But, you know, when I was a young professor, you know, I, I would have to constantly think. And, and the problem is, you know, the reality is people do have those thoughts. You know, oh, who is she? Is she really the professor? Is she really the, how, you're the provost? Really? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so I have to assume people are going to have those reactions and how I am going to respond to that. Right. So that's something to keep in mind is that when, you know, when you're in spaces that are mostly white, you know, and that's our reality, you know, think about what it's like for somebody of color and whether they're Asian or black or, or Latino or whatever, you know, think about what it's like for a person to come into that space mm-hmm. and how you react to that and, you know, how, you know, you are treating that person <laughs> um, and what thoughts come to your mind, because that's something I had to grapple with myself. It's like, oh, well, even for me, because we have this internalized oppression, I might even have certain thoughts about another black person. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I've been reading, uh, well, I finished reading it. Uh, so let's talk about race. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that, that was book. one of the most uh, eye-opening things for me is is her realization that she has her own unconscious biases about other members of the black community because Absolutely. of because of the circumstances of how she grew up and what she had access to. And so it's this idea of like just being able to understand each other's context. And it's mm-hmm. it's not about even agreeing with each other or necessarily coddling each other or whatever. It's just an understanding and an appreciation for where different people come from. Right. Now what what do you say to someone who says Thinking about all of that at the same time, if someone's really trying, it paralyzes me because I'm not sure what I, what I should say or shouldn't say. You know, there's some people that get so in tune to trying to understand someone else's context that they sort of are like a deer in headlights. They don't, they don't want to make any wrong move. What would you say to someone listening that is thinking that right now? Is just, you know, first of all, relax. (laughs) (laughs) Drink. (laughs) Um, you know, we, we all have to face that at some, some certain times. I mean, I feel like that way sometimes, but I mean, I guess that the first step is just being, you know, having some humility. And if you do say something, I I guess the thing that bugs me the most in that situation is people not being willing to admit they made a mistake. Yes. You know, I, I, you know, it's funny because I see this all the time on social media where somebody says something and, you know, and so instead of, you know, being willing to, it's okay. I mean, basically you can say anything you want as long as you're, you know, your heart's in the right place and you're willing to say, if somebody says, Oh, I'm sorry that I, I find that term offensive. Then you say, Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't realize that I, I won't use it again. You know, whatever right. it may be, but just some humility to me mm-hmm. is, is the most important thing. And, you know, if you go into it with, a, you know, your, your heart's in the right place and some humility and, you know, being willing to admit that you didn't, you know, it's hard for us to admit we, admit we don't know something, you know, it, it's interesting. It, it's just so hard to admit, oh, I, I didn't know this. Like, what do you mean? I didn't, you know, that's why we call it gaslighting, right? Like, what do you mean? I, I, I didn't, I didn't say anything like that. You know, what are you talking about? It's like, you're no, just imagining you things. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I said, no, you did just admit it and say you're right. sorry and move on. Well, I saw somewhere, I forget if it was a, you know, an online article or something that said, you know, when people use terms that are offensive and someone says, this offends me and the person says, well, I didn't mean to offend you. I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it in an offensive way. It's sort of like someone walking up to someone and punching them in the face 
and then, or accidentally punching them in the face. And then the person going, oh, that really hurt. And the person going, well, I didn't mean to hit you. So it can't hurt. It's like, no, the punch still hurt, whether it was intentional or not. And that's, that's right. That's what we need to be talking about. <laughs> yes. You know, if, if you, um, I don't know. I mean, there's so many different things, ways to look at that, but absolutely. Yeah. It's like, if you hurt somebody's feelings, just say you're sorry. Right. You know, that's you all they want to hear. About, you don't have to talk, have a debate about whether it wasn't or was, or you meant to, or you didn't to, you didn't mean to. It's the idea of like, oh, that hurt you. Let me understand why. Like use, use that as an opening for a conversation to find more empathy and get more curious about that person and their lived experience. Like right. if you do say something stupid or offensive, it's, oh, I didn't realize that. I'm so sorry. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Like, why did you find that offensive? And I need to know for the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that curiosity can take you so far. Now, the other thing we have to be careful of though, is that we don't count on our black friends or, or brown friends to to be our teachers all the time. Right. <laughs> so right. there's a fine balance there between, you know, asking of you know curiosity and asking about something versus, you know, expecting your black friends to always explain everything to you. So right, you know right. So you're the, black the, on behalf of all other black people, tell me yes. how this <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I can right. say Go read my book. <laughs> well, and that's about taking personal responsibility. And the idea of being curious is not just being curious by asking other people. It's about doing your own investigation as well and your own research. And if you really are curious about this, it's not just hitting up every person who's different from you and badgering them with a bunch of questions. It's also about reading books like yours, understanding history, researching history, and trying to educate yourself in a way about some of the issues. And then maybe you can go to some friends and go, I've been reading about this. Mm -hmm. These are some things maybe I didn't understand. Or, you know, then you can have those productive conversations. Exactly. I want to get to you. You obviously you do so much work with higher education with your company and your consulting and your speaking. I think we were talking about this before we started recording that I think higher education is an institution we haven't even started to crack open about racism and sexism and all the other isms that happen there. I think it's it's good. At least we're starting with capitalism. We're starting with organizations, but it's almost like we haven't even, they're sort of, hold, I feel like they're sort of holding their breath, waiting for the attention to turn onto them soon. <laughs> so tell me about that work in higher education and the most pressing issues there that institutions need to address to be more equitable and inclusive and, and going beyond just, we're doing a bunch of unconscious bias training. Like what are these systemic things that higher education institutions need to be doing to be more equitable? Right. And that's so critical because probably the, well, besides the fact that they're you know in the middle of dealing with financial crises and so on, that's mm-hmm. <laughs> a whole nother topic, but in general, we know that the demographics are changing in the sense that more students of color are going to higher education. I work with several organizations that works to get these kids into college. Mm-hmm. And the problem in higher ed, which I experienced throughout my academic career, is that the, these spaces have been, you know, very hierarchical. And so, you know, for people to make their way up, it's very difficult. And so it's a very white male dominated, you know, both in the administration, as well as in the upper level faculty, we, you know, we have assistant professors, associate professors, and full professors. And they're just, you know, I'm 
a very rare person who made it to full professor, let alone to become a provost, you know, in, right. in as a black woman in higher education. And, you know, there's, it's, it's like, there's, and they, you know, obviously there's lip service given to, oh yes, we need to have more, but even for women, I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, higher ed is way behind. I mean, there's so few, you know, women who make it into leadership positions. And um, so we're still fighting all of those different battles. And so I think the most important thing to happen for higher ed over the next few years is this, first of all, to, to you know, recognition of these issues. And, you know, it happens, you know, like when I was at the University of Texas at Austin, we did a thing on pay inequity between gen, you know, gender pay inequity and so on. And, you know, it was all right, but, you know, there was no follow-up, but, <laughs> Right. Like they, yeah. they adjusted some salaries and say, okay, yeah. move on. Well, they, they tick the box and they're like, okay, we're done. And it's like when you're trying to change hearts and minds and philosophy, you can't just be done. It's an evolution. Yeah. It is. Absolutely. So, I mean, what needs to happen is a real deep look at what, what, why are the structures we've created, you know, keeping women and minorities from being successful in higher education? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I talk about my story in higher ed in my book. And, you know, part of the problem is we don't have enough. It's like I said, you know, my mentors are white men, which is fine. But, you know, white men then have to turn around and be willing to be mentors to women and minorities and, and others. And, mm-hmm. um, and then as, you know, like I said, then as I make it up, you know, I need to turn around and, and you know, pull others up behind me, but, you know, it, it really has to become more systemic and systematic in the sense that we create support structures for students, most importantly for students, because we have to get the students in we have to get, keep them in and we have to get them graduated. And so if we, we don't start to put those structures in place. And that means that we, we accept the students who we have. And, you know, I mean, the, the whole mentality in higher ed is so ridiculous. It's like, oh, it, you know, we're going to, you know, half of our students aren't going to get through this particular class. So we're going to weed out. It's like, no, if you're a teacher, your goal should be to get everybody through a class. <laughs> I mean, you know, imagine if K through 12 functioned that way. Oh, sorry. You know, you know, yeah. you, you, you're, you're, we're going to weed out half the kids. And once they get to ninth grade, <laughs> it's like, no, yeah. going to teach everybody. Right. And so we have to change the mentality. And I've seen that happen. I saw that happen in the University of Texas where, you know, a professor said, why are half of my students failing calculus? So he changed it. He started working with the kids who weren't get doing well because they didn't have a strong background as some of the other kids. And all of a sudden, all the kids were graduating, you know, were, were, you know, getting through his calculus right. class. Right. And mastering it, not, not because they're cutting corners or making things easier. No. I think that's the thing is like, oh, well, we, you know, we want to separate the wheat from the chaff and no, it's, it's about, can you help every student master what they need to do to be successful? That's actually the ultimate metric of higher education is how many students are you graduating? Yeah. It should be that way in graduate school as well. But mm-hmm. that, I, mean, I always tell the story about when I was in graduate school at UCLA, there was, we start to 20. No, 32 people in my cohort. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe five or six of us actually graduated with a PhD. And, How you know. is that success? Yeah, I just, that's crazy. And so what what else do they need to be doing systemically? Is it about pipeline? Is it about yes activating alumni to do their part? What what are some of the things that you do with with higher education clients to help them bridge that gap? 
Yeah, it's a lot of it is networking. It's knowing where to look. So mm. part of the problem, and this is this, I know it's same in corporate world. It's like, where do you look? You know, it's like, yeah. oh, you know, there's. Oh, we account. can't find enough qualified women for this position. Well, maybe you need to change where you're looking. Exactly, <laughs> and you I know, know lots of qualified women. <laughs> that's right, and part of it has to do with the fact that we tend to want to hire people who are like us. You know, right. we reach out to the same networks all the time. And, you know, we have to open up those networks and we have to bring in people who have their own networks. You know, I, so like in, in higher ed, when I'm, when I've been hiring faculty, I go to my friends at university of Michigan or UCLA who I know are really good at, at bringing in students of color. And I say, who's, you know, who do you have on the market? You know, and, and, you know, that we were very successful when I was at UT Austin and bringing in black faculty because of the networks we as black faculty had started to create. But not just about bringing them in. It's also about creating that inclusive environment. So they're supported, right? Exactly. And that's a, so I always tell people, you know, it, it don't hire just one. You know, I do a lot of workshops on hiring and higher ed and I tell them, don't just hire one and expect that, especially, you know, part of the problem with higher ed, you know, I I went to University of Oregon and it's like, you know, Eugene is not the most diverse place. And so you have to convince people to come and stay. And to do that, you have to bring it, you know, more than one. You have to help them find their place in, in, you know, the community. You know, you have to, you know, maybe reach out to people in the private sector and say, hey, you know, we, we need to help you know, these people navigate this city and, and, and there's all kinds of things you can do. I mean, spousal support, um, childcare, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all these different things that are so critical. And I want to bring up the point I made earlier, because this is something I just learned from a parent coach today, which is why it's top of mind for me, is this idea of fairness, right? So, so a very cynical person listening to this podcast, which I know I have no cynics out there, listeners, but a very cynical person who would listen to this podcast might say, well, that's like a lot of effort and time you're spending on a certain group of people. That's not really fair. And again, I go back to this definition of fairness is about making sure everybody has what they need. And, you know, let's just say it like white people don't necessarily need more support when they go to a white college. Like, like they might need individual support for different things that they are facing. But, but the point is, if we want to continue this and make this something that is infused into the fabric of higher education, yeah, we're going to have to pay a little bit more special attention. To some of the underrepresented groups for a while because, because history. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I've heard this complaint before. It's like, well, you know, why do we have African history month or African American history month? And why do we have, you know, the black student union? And and Mm -hmm. it's like, it's because we have to create your, because it already is every month is white history, but you know, (laughs) the, the, I'm sorry, you know, yeah. The whole campus is the, the white student union. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah like, you have to ha- create those spaces. And, yes. and anyone who says that's divisive just doesn't understand what it, the purpose of it is. Exactly. Do you agree? It's, oh, absolutely. And, you know, and not every black student wants to be part of the BSU, you know, right. they may decide they, they want to go hang out with the kids who are roller uh, skaters or, or, you know, <laughs> skateboarders. Right. Um, so people will choose, you know, what they want to do, but there's some students who need that support. And the reason for it is because, you know, I'm, I'm working with a group of students right now. And, you know, you be, need to be able to tell somebody your story who understands. Yes. Right. And you need to create that space where you can go and it's, you know, you have, you feel comfortable and you be, can tell that story. But, you know, the other thing is, you know, like for women in higher ed, you know, 
I mean, higher ed institutions are, you know, only in the last 10, 15 years are getting around to doing things like childcare um, on campus, you know, and thank God University of Texas at Austin had it on campus childcare. When I was at University of Washington, they, they didn't really. And, and so I, or actually I can't remember if they didn't or I couldn't get into it. Anyway, we, we had some place off campus where we, our son went and, you know, the, the, the difference it made to know that my son was on campus and, you know, I, I could get to him quickly, you know, whatever. Right. It made such a huge difference. And, and I know some people, well, why do we have to have childcare when the single people, you know, don't need it? It's like, well, you know, because it, they it's, don't need it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's like, it's kind of like that whole thing with paying taxes. You know, people say, oh, you know, I don't have kids. Why should I pay taxes for school? Well, don't you want a society that's educated? And, yeah, you know, they're going to be your leaders and your doctors and your lawyers someday because at some point you're going to be older than them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, I yeah. mean, you know, it's it's this, it's this me first mentality, I think. Totally, sometimes. totally. All right. So I would love to wrap this up with an empathy, empathy expansion question, if you will, for us, which is, what do you wish that more people understood about your personal experience or how many underrepresented communities feel? Not that you need to speak for every underrepresented community, but what's sort of one thing that frustrates you that you wish that people knew about how those communities feel in the workplace or feel in higher ed and how they view inclusivity? Sort of this is your chance to have like a two minute soapbox to, to educate us and, and share your story so that we can better understand what some of them, again, not all of them might be feeling or thinking so we can have more empathy. Right. I, the one, number one thing I think of when you ask that question is just, we, is to get to know the person, you know, get past the fact that I'm a black woman and get to know who I am because I may not fit your stereotype of what a black woman is. You know, I, I, I get frustrated when people make assumptions about me that don't fit because I, that's not who I am. And, you know, it, it's, we, we, it's normal because we want to put people into boxes, you know, but that's why I say, you know, take a step back and ask questions and don't make assumptions you know, about my background. I mean, I remember, I mean, I couldn't believe this. I was, you know, I finished my dissertation and everything. And my advisor, you know, we I'd known her for six years at that point. And we were talking and she's like, oh yeah, Terry, you know, you, you're, you were probably used to having nannies and stuff growing up. I'm like, huh? You know, I'm like a first generation college goer and my mom was a stay at home mom and had, you know, I'm the youngest of seven. This is somebody who'd known me for six years and because I spoke well and, you know, seemed to come from a, a, you know, a a strong background. It's like, she made this assumption that I came from wealth or something. I'm like, no, my, my dad was in the military. My mom was a stay at home mom. Wow. (laughs) And she had never asked me, you know, what, what my growing up was like. And, And so. And so many of us are doing that within organizations and with our colleagues and our coworkers and even, you know, our customers or our constituents. How many more C's can I get in there? But, you know, we make those assumptions over and over again, especially in tense situations. We tend to make those assumptions around why someone's being difficult or why someone's not speaking out or, you know, why someone's putting a wrench in our plans. We, we make up all these narratives mm-hmm. because it's easier than just asking. And it's easier than getting to know. It's easier than 
Okay. And I look back at my own career, by the way, and realize that there's people I did not get along with that I was, to be honest, horrible to, and they were horrible to me, but I could have done things differently. I was younger. I didn't know any better. I hadn't researched empathy for three years, but you know, you look back and you go, okay, there would have been a better way. Like maybe I didn't know what was going on for that person. And maybe if I just, maybe if we'd just gone to lunch, maybe we'd just gone out for a coffee. I mean, I know, you know, right now as we record this, that's not really happening, but hopefully by the time it airs. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's that idea of just taking that, taking that moment that it feels like it's going to take longer, but it actually accelerates the relationship. It accelerates what you're able to do together when you can have that curiosity instead of making those assumptions. That's right. Absolutely. And it also opens you up. You, basically, it opens up your world, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. when I started really thinking about my own biases, it made me realize, hey, you know, I'm probably making assumptions myself about people that, you know, I wouldn't appreciate it if somebody made about me. And that's mm-hmm. what empathy is all about, right? right. It's partly it's, do, you know, the, I, I like the golden rule, you know, do unto others, but it's, it's beyond What's that. the platinum rule. Exactly. Yeah. Do unto others as they would like you to have them do unto them. Yeah. As, as they would have done unto them. Exactly. Yes. I love it. So Terry, this has been so great and so insightful. And I love the work you're doing both on the empathy front, but also the fact that you are focused on higher ed, because I think the seeds of so much opportunity and a life of contributions can start in higher ed. And so it's wonderful that you're tackling it there before folks even get into organizations or out into the working world. So That's right. um, I really admire it. So tell folks how they can get in touch with you and find out more about the book. Okay. So the book is available and it's coming out this week. And so if you can find it on Amazon or your independent bookseller, so just look up Terry Givens and, and actually I have a page, uh, an author page on Amazon. And then my company is at www.brighterhighered.com. And my personal page, which has info on the book and my the work I do in consulting as well, is uh, just terrygivens.com. T-E-R-R-I, right? Yes, G-I-V as in Victor, E-N-S. G-I-V as in Victor, E-N-S. And <laughs> Radical Empathy is the book. It is yes. wonderful. It is really good and sorely needed. And I just, I loved the way that you blended your personal experience with all the research that you did to make a very compelling narrative. So thank you for putting the book in the world and thanks for your time today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the empathy edge. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with others who want to redefine success and change the game. For more on how empathy makes you and your brand more successful, visit TheEmpathyEdge.com. There, you can download a free guide outlining five business benefits of empathy and a free sample chapter of Maria's book, The Empathy Edge. Until next time, remember that a more empathetic world starts with you and leads to tremendous success. Tremendous success.